Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. A common question from the back of a maths class is when will I ever need to know all of this? Kit Yates is a senior lecturer in mathematical biology at the UK's University of Bath, and he's in a great position to answer that question. In his writing, he's highlighted the multiple instances in everyday life when a good grasp of some fundamental mathematical principles can make a huge difference. In this podcast, the science journalist Anna Deming chats with Kit about what happens when the messy world of biology meets the austere abstractions of mathematics. Kit also explains why he spends his spare time communicating maths to the general public and why he was a member of Independent Sage, a working group that was set up to provide transparent information during the COVID-19 pandemic. They also chat about Kit's recent book, How to Expect the Unexpected. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World podcast. I'm Anna Deming, a freelance contributor to this week's show, and today I have the great treat of introducing you to my guest, Kit Yates. Now, Kit Yates is director of the Centre for Mathematical Biology at the University of Bath in the UK, as well as being a regular contributor for The Guardian and The Times, The Huffington Post, The Eye, The Independent, The Daily Mail, and Scientific American, among others, with his science writing. And he is now the author of two books that bring maths to the general public. Hello, Kit, and welcome to the show. Hi, Anna. Thanks so much for having me on. Great. Now, you're clearly a very busy person with lots of strings to your bow. But how would you describe the majority of your work these days? Yeah, so my job is still full time as a as a senior lecturer in mathematical biology at the University of Bath. So as part of that, I teach undergraduates, I supervise PhD students, I do novel research, and I also do the boring admin side of things that the job comes with. Um, but more and more, I'm trying to do more public engagement and outreach. Fortunately, my one of my jobs in the department is the coordinator for outreach and engagement and widening participation in the department. So I can sort of try and combine. Uh, that official job with an unofficial job, which sees me staying up until all hours in the morning, writing books or writing articles, doing podcasts like these, which is great. And um, yeah, trying to, um, you know, communicate math to the general public through any means possible. Great. And when you'd say your research is predominantly mathematical biology, could you give us a, a little bit of a steer on what sort of things you're researching, like some examples? Yeah, of course. I think um, mathematical biology may be an area that people are not particularly familiar with. It's a relatively new subject. It sounds strange that this sort of messy area like biology can be coupled with this very sort of austere and abstract area of mathematics. But actually, you know, as applied mathematicians, what we're trying to do is to describe the world around us. And, and biology can can succumb to, to our mathematical charms, I suppose. So uh, I work on a whole range of different systems uh, from the way that locusts migrate in, in a locust plague all the way through to the way that embryos develop and um, in particular interested in pigmentation pattern formation in embryos. So, um, 
the the thing that all of my research has in common is is stochasticity or, or noise or randomness. So um, I'm interested in in how randomness can play an important role in biological processes. Right. And usually we think random means you can't predict it, but um, we get it. Did you did a little bit of that in your book? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think randomness can confound us when um, when we're trying to make predictions. But there there are even in random processes there are sort of repeatable characteristics that we can often spot. So, for example, the you know, the timing of any one earthquake is very difficult to predict. It's basically impossible. It's a it's, it's a, a random a very random process. But actually, there is a distribution to how often earthquakes of different frequencies occur, and we can use that to make predictions about planning for earthquakes. For example, so I know that Manchester, my hometown, um, I can make a pretty solid prediction that San Francisco, for example, will experience more higher magnitude earthquakes than Manchester will, and therefore they need to prepare more although i can't tell you exactly when an earthquake will happen in san francisco i can tell you that they do need to be prepared for earthquakes so i think um yes although processes can be random that doesn't necessarily mean they're completely unpredictable and actually the more you study the more you understand randomness the more you can start to to unpick the the patterns and not be fooled uh into seeing patterns that aren't there now it's immediately obvious when you're, you're talking about your research and um people who are reading the books or people who have read other things that you've written, you're clearly, you care a lot about maths and, and the uh, topic that you work with the maths on. But what was it that led you into this kind of research? Was it the maths or was it the the biological subjects that it's applied to or a bit of both? Yeah, both. I think I would... I think I would struggle to be a pure mathematician working on something which is completely abstract or at the moment is completely abstract. Uh, this is not to denigrate pure mathematics, of course, like pure mathematics is, is important. And it's important that we have knowledge for knowledge's sake sometimes. Um, but I think I, I really need to know that there's an application to, to my work. So interesting, I suppose, um, when I was doing my PhD, uh, I, well, I started doing maths as an undergraduate and I thought actually it was a bit sad that, that I had left biology behind at school. Um, but actually I realised doing my undergraduate degree that um, there was this course called Mathematical Biology and I could start to apply maths to, to, to understand human life, human health and, and, uh, and more broadly to, to broader biological systems. And so I did this PhD in, um, in Mathematical Biology or what's called Systems Biology then. Um, and... I, I got really engaged in studying cancer. I had a, a friend when I was I was younger, 17, he, he died of colorectal cancer, very young. And I thought that this would be a great route to go down, uh, I, idealistically, I suppose. I realized that it probably wasn't the best motivation to, to study a subject, so I broadened out a little bit. But that was one of the motivations for studying mathematical biology, was to understand human diseases and and to try to to do something which could could make uh to, to could improve on those situations could develop treatments and so on so yeah i was driven by both by maths and biology and then when i got to a certain stage i thought well you know we need to we need to communicate our subject better to to the wider public because actually maths has a reputation as being fusty and and you know this boring textbook where everything is done but actually you know there's really exciting active research going on in mathematics and it is changing the world around us whether we see it or not and I suppose the point is that I'm trying to make people see it more. Right so that sounds like that's given you quite a lot of motivation well for the research and for your the way you're communicating it to 
general audiences. You talk about maths as uh, sometimes coming across as a bit fusty. Is that how you remember it as a child? Do you have, did you always love it or do you remember hating it or loving it as a child? I, I never hated maths. I always quite enjoyed it. I think fortunately I was a person who, who got maths. I, not that it wasn't easy. I still had, so not that it wasn't hard. Like I still had to, to work at maths, but it seemed to make sense to me. Um, and I remember thinking there were there were a few things where I um, don't want to make myself sound like I'm pretending to be some sort of genius, but there were a few ideas that came up in maths which I'd been thinking about sort of independently. So I remember um, going on a ferry and and thinking, what happens if I drop uh, a ball bearing on this ferry? Will it will it move with the ferry, or will it should it you know fall in a straight line down? to the floor or will it move relative to the to the sea which we're, which we're moving through and and actually th- those sorts of ideas are, are fundamental to uh, to relativity to special relativity understanding how a moving frame of reference changes uh, the observations that we make so it was it was not i mean i i couldn't formalize those ideas in my head i just had this this question that i was trying to ask but it was great when that question was answered for me by studying mathematics and physics at school so I sort of realised that, yeah, this was a subject which could answer those those questions which I couldn't find answers to at home, for example. My family, none of them are mathematicians, none of them are, none of them are scientists at all. So, yeah, it was great to have this subject which I felt could answer really important questions about the world. Yeah, and you're right, it is exciting. And especially, I think, children do come up with these random questions and you, you do see the, a little bit of a light go up when they're, ah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you can actually answer it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's right. As we are all too aware, in 2020, the world succumbed to a pandemic with a tragic death toll, multiple national lockdowns across the globe, and lives changed beyond recognition for many people. And this was a time when maths was something that not just children were asking questions about in the general public as well, I suppose. It was a pandemic that felt all too close to home for a lot of readers but it sounds like you might have felt a little bit closer to the heat than a lot of us since you joined the SAGE committee and I gather this is the Indie SAGE so that's a group of scientists working together to provide independent scientific advice to the UK government and public around minimising the toll of Covid and helping towards the recovery but maybe you could tell us a little bit about your work there and what motivated you to undertake it. Yeah, so in 2019, I'd I'd written this book, uh, The Maths of Life and Death, and um, January 2020, it came out in America, and the title of the last chapter was called How to Stop an Epidemic. And then, you know, a month or two later, we were thrust into the midst of this global pandemic, and I felt that, you know, I had the tools there to try and communicate the the mathematics behind what was what was going on. So many of the policies that were being made, in particular in the UK, were based on mathematical modelling projections of what was going to happen under various different circumstances. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I guess I believe that if you're going to ask people to undergo serious restrictions to their liberties and to make laws based on um, scientific advice, that we should try and communicate that scientific advice to the public as as well as we possibly can. Um, so at the time in March 2020, um, SAGE, the Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies in the UK, 
was um, was not the, the membership was not known. Uh, the minutes were not being published, and so this group of scientists called Independent Sage decided to to form and to run weekly briefings where they would discuss the latest data, so numbers of deaths, hospitalizations, cases, and so on, alongside talking about the science that was that was being done, and then taking questions directly from the general public live on YouTube, on Twitter every week. Um, and so I started out by in March trying to you know write articles and do radio shows about what was happening on, on a few uh, radio shows here in the UK and did a bit of TV news to try and explain things and then in October 2020 I joined this group called Independent Sage and I've been a member since then and yeah we run a, a weekly or now it's gone to bi-weekly as the pressure has receded a little bit briefing where we we discuss all things COVID with with the general public and try to just communicate the science um, so that people can be better informed. Right. And this, people can still tune in every other week. It sounds like on Fridays, yeah. half past one. Yeah. And that's half past one at UK time. I yeah. can imagine it was, there was a time when people were hearing a lot about our numbers. There were a lot of graphs. And so there really was quite a lot of maths being thrust at people that, um, especially things like exponential growth, it yeah. suddenly did highlight a lot of gaps. Yeah, maths was at the forefront of of the the news every day. I would be invited on to talk about the R number, which up until that point no one had, no one had heard about, apart from you know small mathematical epidemiology um, circles. You know, it answered that question that is perennially asked at the back of the math classroom: When am I ever going to need to use this? Well, you're going to need to use it to understand exponential growth to to see what's going to happen in the future and. Uh, yeah, there's there's a little bit in the, the new book, How to Expect the Unexpected, about exponential growth. And, and I look at a paper in there which suggests that people who don't understand exponential growth as well, they exhibit something called exponential growth bias, which means they, they think it's going to grow more slowly than it actually does. They are less likely to adhere to restrictions which are aimed at limiting the spread of a disease precisely because they can't understand, they can't see how quickly the things are going to get out of hand. So, um, you know, really understanding these things and explaining them to the general public really is uh, an important thing in terms of understanding and controlling infectious disease. Yeah, you have a, a number of really pertinent examples in the book of why it is really worthwhile understanding your maths. But before we come on to that book, I'd like to just come back to the, the maths of life and death which was your first book, um, right, which was published in 2019. What were your aims with that book? So, yeah, this was obviously before the pandemic, but I guess I wanted to highlight the places in which maths can have an impact on people's everyday lives, perhaps without them even realising it. So there are seven chapters and they're broken down into areas like maths and medicine, uh, maths and the law, and then this last chapter on on mathematical epidemiology. But yeah, it's just it's telling real people's stories. I wanted to get to the heart of of what you know what impacts everyone in their day to day lives, and I wanted to talk to real people and to explain their stories of where they've been um, you know badly treated by the criminal justice system because of mathematical misunderstanding or. Um, perhaps they've had their, you know, their liberty restricted uh, because of a mistake, or maybe they were put in a dangerous medical situation because um, a doctor didn't understand probability, or, or something like that. So, so yeah, I tried to get to the bottom of these people's stories and to then, you know, explain the maths and try to learn from those stories and try to, um, you know, to let people know how they can change their lives slightly with just a small amount of 
extra mathematical understanding, it could go mm. a long way. And now this is going to sound a silly question because the maths of life and death has been translated into 20 languages. It's read across the world. But were you pleased with it? Um, yeah, I, I was. I, I liked um, I, I, I mean, I, I really enjoyed writing it. That's the first thing to say. Like, I enjoyed, even though it was sort of extracurricular activity for me, sitting down most evenings writing till midnight. Uh, it was a, a real release, something different to my day job. I think, I think I did an okay job with it. Um, the The Times called it one of their science books of the year, so I was pretty or Sunday Times. I was pretty happy about that. One thing I'd do differently, though, is not have maths in the title. Um, I think that turns people off, unfortunately. Some people, it will excite them. But the people, I guess, I was trying to target as non-mathematicians, um, I think that probably puts people off. Even though, you know, the, I made I went to great lengths to make sure there were no equations at all in the book. Even when they were simple equations, I tried to remove all equal signs from the book because I, I know that it puts people off, but I still uh, did want to explain these deep mathematical ideas, but without using the the formal maths, perhaps, that, that we might use uh, typically, which means you often have to write longer explanations, but hopefully they they come across clearly and using you know analogies and telling real people's stories helps to get to the heart of people. So yeah, I hope I did a, a good job. Um, and um, yeah, I hope people who are listening to this, who've read it or who go on to read it. Really yeah, enjoy. I mean, I have to say, I find your mathematical descriptions without the equations very, very clear. It, it makes it sound so easy. Like, I could do maths. Yeah. Why don't oh, I put yeah. out a paper soon? <laughs> Thank you. No, I mean, like that's what I suppose that's what I'm trying to encourage is I'm not suggesting that everyone needs to go and do a degree in mathematics. Right. But I think that. Um, you know, using some of the tricks and tools in in the book can 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 help people out, and I think that um, yeah, I'm just encouraging people to to be a little bit more numerate. And and actually, one of the main things is to shatter this illusion of certainty to 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 take people who are wielding the numbers and say, well, is that is that right to ask the questions really? To say for the doctor, could you explain this? Um, probability to me um, in a little bit more detail because I don't really understand where that's come from or how it's calculated. Can you express that for me? So, so to ask the questions um, and ask someone to explain it to them rather than just accepting every number or statistic that they see in the newspaper or, or in the doctor's. Yeah, system. sure. I asked the question whether you're pleased with it because, I mean, there, there's many platitudes I could give to you know suggest that it you should be pleased with it, but you've gone on to write another book. So, what was it you wanted to do with this second book that you hadn't done with the first? I mean, there's just so much. There's just so much to cover. I suppose, like I, I'm hoping that I'll continue to go on and write many, many more books. Um, yeah. So this this new one, How to Expect the Unexpected, is about predicting the future, and it seems sort of prescient in terms of. Uh, the fact that we just lived through this global pandemic when predicting the future was a very difficult and b very important. So again, th this one is is all about trying to highlight mistakes that have been made with predictions, trying to l help people reason to see through their ingrained biases, I suppose, uh, and to not let people be exploited by people who would. Uh, use mathematics and statistics uh, or even just sort of simple psychological manipulation against them the the first chapter is called gut feelings and it's all about i go and visit a psychic and it's all about learning the tools that the psychic uses on me which are the same tools that people who've been 
predicting the future in, in inverted commas uh, for thousands of years have been using to make predictions that seem to come true, but maybe are just sort of bland platitudes in, in general and not really good, strong predictions. So, um, yeah, it's all about trying to stop people being manipulated and to, again, provide to empower people, I suppose, when it comes to predicting the future. Yeah, one of the things that impressed me when reading on how to expect the unexpected, and don't get me wrong, there is some lots of really intriguing maths with game theory, chaos, and references to things like causal emergence and that sort of thing. But there is a lot of psychology in it where you describe all these quirks of our brains that lead us often into erroneous assumptions. And a lot of them even seem to contradict themselves. For instance, you talk about normalcy bias and how resistant we can be to accepting something we don't expect. And you give us an example, the people on the Titanic who tragically failed to grasp that this unsinkable ship really was mm. sinking. And so you have that on one hand, and then you have the von Restorff effect in memory biases, where you take particular notice of something that you don't expect, which seems a bit of a contradiction. And there's there's many more. I won't list more. Listeners will have to read the book. <laughs> but the list goes on. <laughs> Are you ever struck by how flawed our cognitive apparatus is? Even surprised that we managed to get by with it at all? Absolutely, all the time. It's so it's so difficult. Um, yeah, all the the all the whole of chapter one is basically just a catalogue of of biases and and psychological um, errors or ways we can be manipulated from um, one of the things that the psychic did is to bequeath psychic credit to me. So to tell me that I was empathetic and that I could understand. And and it's basically simply simply sort of flattery, I suppose. And I'm like, oh yeah, that's nice. That's good. I mean, I, I don't believe it at all, but you know, many people going to see a psychic, of course, will be primed, primed to believe it. Things like exploiting coincidences so psychics would call it synchronicity when someone calls you that you've been thinking about but i suppose one of the lessons of the book is that given enough opportunities even seemingly extraordinary unlikely things can happen and sometimes when we see a coincidence you know we we jump to to find a cause behind that coincidence when there really isn't a cause and so um, that's another sort of psychological bias um, that we have. Some of them become more and more mathematical. So uh, spotting patterns in noisy data, that's a really common one. It's called pareidolia that we that we do, again, inferring causation where there, where there isn't any. Um, so, yeah, there's just a whole, a whole raft of biases. It's really difficult to overcome them, and I'm still victim to many of them, as, as everyone else is, I'm sure. But sometimes now I, I can spot myself doing it. So before I retweet something which is laden with confirmation bias, I think, is that the right thing to do? Or am I just retweeting this because it agrees with my pre con, you know, predefined conceptions of, of what I'm expecting to see? So I'm not saying that we're all ever going to be able to completely override these biases or that anyone can be you know, perfect in any sense of being completely objective all the time. But I suppose it's just making people aware of those of those biases uh, that underpin the way that we think and the way that we remember and the way that we act and just thinking if we can step back a little bit and and not always act on those impulses. Sure, forewarned is forearmed, hey? <laughs> exactly, yeah, for sure. To, how to expect the unexpected is replete with wonderful and wide-ranging anecdotes that you've got plentiful examples of all these different uh, mathematical ideas 
some delightfully personal, like your own visit to the psychic at the beginning. Others really left me wondering, where did you come across them? They're not just, um, for instance, you've got the, the hospital that you use as an example of ch- chasing the metrics and the problems there. Not just the hospital, but then you have this, this fellow, Walter, like a really personal example. Where do you get your anecdotes from? Yeah, um, re- reading widely, I suppose, and and searching the internet for uh, for these sorts of stories. I guess um, often I'll I'll come round to a topic and think, where could you know, where is it likely that this sort of mathematical problem could come up? And then I'll you know, for example, I think that hospital example chasing league tables is about Goodhart's law, which is it basically says when you make a metric a target, it ceases to become a useful target anymore because, or useful metric anymore rather because people try to game the system to hit the target without actually improving the, the metric. So hospital waiting list is a good example where um, people just turn down patients, which isn't you know a good thing for hospitals to be doing, but they turn down the most difficult patients to treat because it'll be quicker and they have better success rates. So when success rates become a target, it means, you know, that potentially the overall performance of a hospital goes down. So yeah, then I'll, I'll look for potential articles where that might've happened. And then if I can, I'll try and follow up with the individuals themselves. You can't always get in contact with people, but actually nowadays with Facebook and, and various other social media sites, you often can get in touch with people uh, so actually hearing their story firsthand from them is is really great and quite sobering as well, actually, most of the time. But yeah, just looking for these examples, thinking about place. I'm sure there are many, many more examples that I haven't been able to find and haven't been able to dig out. But hopefully, yeah, the, the key behind what I do or what I've done in both books is to make situations, I hope, relatable by putting them in, in real world context and, and giving you real people who've experienced these these mathematical phenomena yeah well i know i thoroughly enjoyed the book listeners who get the chance to read it uh, i doubt they will have read it just yet i think this will be coming out just after the book is released i think nonetheless we'll all be interested to know what's next have you got ideas for more books already in the pipeline or something completely different yeah, I've started the pitch okay. for the next book. Um, it's it's not um, it's not well developed enough yet, or at least I haven't thought of a good enough way to explain the idea yet. But yeah, I've, I'm working on on the next book, but also trying to do you know more writing in newspapers, trying to do pitch. I'm always pitching for radio shows, for series, for TV shows. If uh, so, if there are any you know um, TV producers, radio producers, who want to sign me up, give me a shout. Um, let me know. But yeah, so I'm always thinking about other ways to try and communicate math to the general public and to get a more broadly science across. I think you know, maths is, is my area of expertise, but being a mathematical biologist, I can speak to other areas of science as well. So, you know, I, I also work with a, a psychologist, so that's why I felt a bit more confident to write about psychology in this in this last book. So I feel like I can broaden out a little bit and 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 talk about places where maths can apply to to all sorts of of different areas so yeah more books um radio shows tv whatever comes my way i'll um i'll try and do it as long as it's uh, sort of fulfilling this mission of trying to communicate science and math to the general public great well it sounds like watch this space more to come <laughs> yeah kit i'm afraid that's all we have time for today but it has been a real treat to talk to you so for now on behalf of the physics well team thank you very much for joining us and to our listeners thank you very much for listening
That was Kit Yates in conversation with Anna Deming. Anna has reviewed Kit's most recent book for Physics World, and you can find her review on the website under the headline, How Can We Navigate an Unpredictable World? The Answer Lies in Mathematics. Clapping your hands to show your approval is a very old gesture that apparently goes back at least as far as ancient Rome. But what about the physics of clapping? How, for example, would you hold your hands to create the loudest possible clap? Or how would you create a clap with a deep, bassy tone? Now, researchers at the Technical University of Crete have investigated the acoustics of clapping, and the science writer Laura Hiscott has read their paper and chatted with them about what they've learned. So if you want to find out why hand claps can be modeled in terms of Helmholtz resonances, and how you can change the sound of your clapping by adjusting the shapes of your hands, check out Laura's article on the Physics World website. It's called The Physics of Hand Clapping. Here's how to do it best. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Kit Yates and Anna Deming for a wonderful conversation, and a special thanks to our producer, Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. See you then. Physics World.